Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming. We are tremendously proud of our relationship with Cambridge University, who committed 10 years ago to sending us their best and brightest research scientists to communicate with our audience at Hay. And they have been, to a man and a woman, the most brilliant and inspiring speakers. So I'm delighted that the biologist we have most wanted to invite here for all those 10 years is here with us today. She is um, the winner of the Rosalind Franklin Royal Society Prize. She has been uh, awarded the UK Genetics Medal. Uh, she is probably the world's finest and most eloquent plant biologist. Please give a very warm welcome to Ottilie Lyser. Absolutely. <laughs> Hello, it's a huge pleasure to be here. Um, after that kind of introduction, uh, nothing can happen but a disappointment, but I'll do my best. Um, <clears throat> so uh, what I want to talk about for the next 45 minutes or so is plants. And I want to talk about plants in the context of, of how they decide what to do. And they manage to do this in an extraordinarily interesting way because they don't have the thing that we as people think of as the thing you need to decide what to do, and that's a brain. So plants manage to decide what to do without one, and this, I think, is very interesting, but also immediately um, raises in people's minds kind of but-type questions. And we plant biologists are very familiar with kind of but type questions, and we have a bit of a chip on our shoulder, I must say, because there's a kind of assumption out there that plants don't actually do anything, let alone decide what it is they want to do. They kind of just sit there, maybe they get a bit bigger, but they don't really do anything. And as such, they are really pretty boring. And I hope I'll be able to convince you that that's not the case, but it's nonetheless the kind of basic attitude that people come in with. They, you know, they look pretty, they're quite good to eat, but they don't actually do anything. And so I spent quite a lot of time trying to work out why it is that we have such a hard time imagining or thinking about the fact that plants do things. And I think it's because we, as people, have an immensely biased idea about what doing things means. And it's biased in two kinds of ways. One of those ways is that we are very um, focused on the kinds of things that we do, and if other things do the kinds of things we do, then we recognize that as somebody doing something. And also our idea of, of action, of doing, is incredibly closely tied to movement. And um, I want to illustrate that with this first slide. So this is a single-celled um, slime mold. It's, uh, and it, it is very, it's very, they're very interesting um, natural history of these slime molds. They live as these single-celled amoebae, and then if times get hard, they aggregate together in this kind of communal migratory slug, it's called. It's very cool. I recommend you look at full moves of these slugs migrating on YouTube, and they go and find somewhere else um, better to live. So, but here it is in its single-cell stage, and it's receiving from the end of this pipette this um, aggregation signal. So it's going to move towards the aggregation signal. And if I start the movie, you can see it figuring out where that signal is, and off it goes. But then... So, so the reaction that I'm getting from you guys is exactly um, what typically happens. There are some particularly prominent people over there saying, oh. <laughs> because what you're seeing here is something you recognize. You recognize it as, as a doing action. It, it's a, a, an organism that has sensed something in the environment that it wants in some sense, and it's moving towards it. And then the cruel experimenter is moving this pipette around, and the poor slime mold can't get what it wants, and so it must be deeply frustrated and upset. And uh, <laughs> this is a single-celled slime mold. <laughs> I can assure you it is not frustrated, and it is not upset. 
But we, as people, are just instantly drawn to it, and we have this deep kind of empathy with it. And I think this fundamentally is why people can't look at a plant and think, that's amazing what that plant is doing, despite the fact that the things plants do are utterly astonishing, way more astonishing than this kind of stuff, which is relatively trivial, to be honest. Uh, apologies to all my friends who work on chemotaxis and dictostelium. I, I, I appreciate they're doing a very good job. Um, so what is it that plants are doing that's so astonishing? And that is um, encapsulated by this slide with rather a lot of text on it, um, which historians of science will recognise, um, because this is a guy, Jean-Baptiste Van Helmont, who is, is credited as being one of the earliest proper experimental scientists in the sense that he did some of the earliest things, and this is one that is often discussed in the history of science, uh, a, a, a thing that, that is kind of genuinely an investigative experiment. So what you can see from his notebook here is he took this earthen pot in which he placed 200 pounds of earth that he had dried out very carefully and weighed, and he wet it with rainwater, and he put in it a shoot of willow, which weighed five pounds, and he looked after it very carefully for five years, because in those days he wasn't under nearly the same pressure that we are to deliver results. <laughs> and uh, he watered it very carefully with rainwater, and, and after five years he weighed it, and it had grown to now be 100. 69 pounds and three ounces, which is pretty impressive. Willows are very fast-growing trees. And um, uh, the only thing it had done to it was give it rainwater or, or distilled water. And there it was, 169 pounds of stuff. So he took out all the soil and weighed it again and found it was really only kind of two ounces less than it was when he had started. And so he concluded, 164 pounds of wood, bark, and roots has arisen from water alone. And by using this apparatus, he'd learned that um, plants make themselves uh, out of water. And we all think this is hilarious, because, of course, that's not how it works. And how could he be so um, you know, stupid as to imagine that plants was making themselves entirely out of water? But the truth, of course, is not so very different, which is plants mostly make themselves out of water and thin air, out of carbon dioxide. So all the trees you see around us have literally built themselves out of thin air and water and a little sprinkling of, of mineral nutrient. And that is astonishing. And to people, it's so astonishing because it's so alien and so far from what we do that when people first started thinking about it, it, it kind of didn't occur to them that that could possibly what be what was going on, to build yourself out of gas and water. And what plants need to, to thrive is, is a very limited set of things. So um, you can make a list. They want water and carbon dioxide. And, of course, the, the, um, the photosynthesis the photosynthetic reaction that brings that water and carbon dioxide together to make all the complex molecules that, that make up a plant is fueled by light energy, so they need energy from the sunlight, and then a few mineral nutrients, and then, of course, everybody wants sex, so um, plants included. So um, <coughs> very simple ingredients needed to make up a plant because they are able to do this really extraordinary thing of build very complex molecules out of very simple molecules. And we, as animals, can't do that. We depend entirely on eating plants or things that have eaten plants because all those complex molecules that we, we build ourselves out of, proteins, carbohydrates, fats, um, they rely on these carbon-carbon double bonds that are, are made in photosynthesis um, by using light energy to stick carbon dioxide molecules together. And that is where pretty much all the, the energy comes into living systems through photosynthetic plants or photosynthetic microbes, in, in, particularly in aquatic environments. So it's an astonishing thing that plants do, and it's so astonishing that it's hard for us to recognize it. And, and because they get their, all their important ingredients, so to speak, in this very different way for a very different process, the, the drivers that have shaped the way plants live and grow and the ways in which they make the decisions about, uh, that they make constantly through their lives are very different and they look very different to, to what we do. What we do looks quite like that slime mold. You sent something a long way away, you go away and you try to get it. What a plant does is collect up these freely available resources from the environment, water, carbon dioxide, mineral nutrients. Uh, they're freely available, but they're relatively dilute, so they 
are driven, really, by um, uh, surface area. Plants need surface area, and um, here's a kind of cartoon plant, and there's a large underground surface area that's collecting the water and the mineral nutrients, and there's a large above-ground surface area that is collecting light and carbon dioxide, and um, then, of course, there are specialized organs, the flowers that are um, allowing um, sexual reproduction. So um, specialized tissues, division of labor across the plant, but um, above and below ground, very large surface area. And as soon as you have a very large surface area, you can't move. And um, OK, so animals need to move in order to go to find their food. Plants don't need to move in order to go to find their food. But, um, and in fact, it's that very thing that makes them rooted to the spot. But the other thing that is a huge advantage of being able to move is that you can run away from something that's trying to eat you. And if you don't like the environment in which you're living, you can move to a nice one. And as soon as plants have sacrificed their mobility in order to collect up these salute uh, mineral nutrients and, and water from the soil, then they land themselves at the same time with this dual problem. In entirely interconnected, there's no way around it. Plants have got to solve um, the problem of being a sitting duck, so even this vicious predatory slug is a major threat to a plant. Um, doesn't look too scary to one of us because we can move out of the way of it without too much trouble. If you're a plant, this slug is, is, is serious. Um, and it has to deal with the fact that the environment might change, as we've been seeing all week, between very hot and sunny and torrential rain in no time at all. And the, the plant is unable to take its jumper off in the sunshine or put its umbrella up in, or move inside into a lovely tent in, in, if it's raining. So um, from the fact that, that you have to have this large surface area, you can't move. From the fact that you can't move, you have to solve simultaneously dealing with a rapidly changing environment and defending yourself from predators without any, any possibility of getting out of their way. And these are really the key drivers that under, underlie the way plants think and how they make decisions about what to do. So if we kind of map that then onto the way that plants and animals um, grow and develop and live throughout their lives, you can see this difference mapped out across the life cycle of these organisms. So um, fundamentally, I'm, I'm a developmental biologist. That's my, my core interest in life. I'm really interested in how you go from a single fertilized egg to a complex multicellular organism with lots of different cell types in different parts of the organism in the right place at the right time, doing the right things, working together to deliver the function of the organism. And in animals, most of that happens in a relatively narrow time frame. Um, uh, <coughs> in a relatively constant um, environment. So um, everybody in this room used to be a single cell. I always find that kind of amazing. And now look at us. And, uh, but most of the, the ba your basic body plan, your head, your arms, your legs, that was all established during embryogenesis. And after you were born, really primarily what's happened is you've got bigger. And where you've uh, had environmental challenges, for example, you've mostly dealt with those by changing your behavior, by going into the tent if it's raining, for example. Now, if you're a plant, plants have a, single, a, a similar kind of program of embryogenesis for taking you from a single fertilized egg into um, a, an embryo. That's what there is inside a seed, a dormant seed. And that's a really important um, uh, resting point, so to speak, for a plant so that it can pick the best time to germinate and start its main adventure in life, the, the kind of growth and, and development phase, after embryogenesis. So embryogenesis in, in a plant really just establishes the basic body axes, the top and the bottom and the inside and the outside. And there's an enormous amount of development as well as growth that happens post-embryonically. So um, from little acorns, mighty um, oak trees grow. That all that extra growth and development is post-embryonic, and that obviously massively outstrips the kinds of growth and developmental decisions that animals get to make um, post-embryonically. And there is a, a real sense that 
where functionally what we consider to be behaviors, um, responses to the environment to go and do something, in, an animal con in a plant context is development. So many of the behaviors that, that um, uh, plants have to deal with the environment in which they're growing are to change their growth and developmental patterns to adapt to that local environment. So there's a real kind of uh, conceptual equivalence between behavior and decision-making as to what you're going to do in animals and behavior and decision-making into how and where you're going to grow in plants. And plants are able to, to flip that, to make, to, to make their development into a behavior, into a decision-making continuous process because their development is continuous throughout the life cycle. So this is a cross-section through, through a little tiny seed. And um, what you see are, are these two seed leaves, the kind of cotyledons, which will open up and get photosynthesis going very quickly after germination. And then a little group of cells established right at the tip of the embryonic um, root-shoot axis, which is across here, and a similar little group of cells right at the tip of the root. And these cells are, in the animal sense, stem cells. They're, they're these cells that self-renew and at the same time provide extra cells to build the whole rest of the organism. And, and they're called meristems. This is a shoot apical meristem, and at the bottom will be a root apical meristem. And the whole shoot system that develops after this seed germinates is going to be derived ultimately from this little group of, of stem cells at the top of the shoot, and the whole root system will be ultimately derived from this little group of stem cells at the bottom of the root. So after the, the plant germinates and starts to grow, um, you, can have a, you can zoom in and look again at this meristem. Um, this is the shoot apical meristem in a scanning electron micrograph from a tomato plant. And it's a dome of cells, and it's dividing and renewing the, the dome, but pushing cells down to the edge of the dome, where these leaves are initiating in a beautiful spiral pattern. And uh, I could give three more lectures on, on that spiral pattern, because it's very elegant how that forms. But actually, what we mostly are focused on in my research program is understanding um, <clears throat> the behavior of secondary meristems. So in the base of every single one of these leaves that's made by the primary meristem, there's a whole other shoot apical meristem that hangs out in the base of this leaf, a so-called axillary meristem. And that tends to develop as a little bud. And the bud um, can uh, produce a whole um, another shoot or not. So if you think about the whole plant that's been uh, um, made from the primary shoot apical meristem up here, you can think about this meristem as churning out chunks of modules. And those models, modules consist of a bit of stem like this, uh, an organ like this leaf, and then a whole other shoot, a little tiny shoot apical meristem, which has exactly the same developmental potential as the primary one in the base of every single leaf. And this um, uh, gives plant development this, this, these very important properties um, that allow it to win the war or to address these challenges of being a sitting duck in a changing environment. So it allows the development to be continuous because um, uh, it, it's continuous throughout the life cycle of the plant through the action of these stem cell populations, which are maintained throughout the life cycle of the plant. And it's highly modular. So these chunks that are being churned out um, are, are, you can iterate those chunks as often as you like, so to speak. And that modularity gives you great flexibility because the number of times that you make a module can vary. And that's particularly true when you consider that every one of these modules includes a whole new um, shoot apex. And so um, in the base of every one of these leaves is a whole other shoot apex, and you can make a whole other shoot. And the same is true in the leaves made from that shoot. So one single plant genotype, if you look at it that way, could make just a single unbranched stem or a massively ramified bush just by iterating these modules of, of, a, bit of, of a bit of stem, a leaf, and a new meristem, and then controlling whether or not those new meristems grow out to form a shoot. <clears throat> and this gives you incredible flexibility. So if you're in a very well-fertilized situation, you can make this enormous bush. Um, or if you're in a very uh, uh, poorly fertilized situation, you can still get through your life cycle and make at least some seed by not branching, by focusing all your growth and resources into one um, shoot axis. So it gives you flexibility in a changing environment. And it does it in a way that gives you no unique parts. OK? 
Okay? This is very important to deal with this problem that if you're a plant, bits of you will be eaten. They just will. And so if you have any part that is a unique part that you can't replace, then you've had it. So if you think about that slug, if that slug comes and bites your head off, you're in big trouble. But if you're a plant, because of this incredible modularity in development, um, any part of this plant can be eaten, and there, it will, there are equivalent parts there already, and uh, similar parts can um, be regrown even. Um, and that, that's great, and it's a terrific thing. But if you then think about it, you're making decisions like, should I branch or should I not branch, depending on how much nutrient I have available. And you're making those decisions with no unique parts. And that means no central control. So you have to be making whole plant-level decisions about what to do with your resources with no central processing unit. And that, I think, is super cool, and is why I think the way that plants think, the way they decide what to do, is such an interesting problem to study. So we're very interested in understanding exactly this, in how a, a little bud, here's a little bud sitting between the main stem and the leaf of a, the plant that we mostly work on, that's called Arabidopsis. It's, it's like the lab rat for, for plants. And here is the little bud, and it's trying to decide, should I grow out or not grow out? And um, if it were an animal, um, there would be you know, some part of the plant over here and some part of the plant over here. And in principle, they should be communicating with one another through central processing in the brain. In, in um, this particular case, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. But in general, the left hand does know what the right hand is doing because of this central processing. In, in the plant situation, um, here's a cartoon plant, here is the main shoot apical meristem, here are all these other apical meristems, and somehow these meristems have to decide whether or not to activate, and in order to do that, they have to know information, they have to have information about things like how much nutrient there is available, and information about how many um, active meristems there are already, who's already growing, who's already making leaves. And, um, how they know those things and how they put those things together to make a decision is exactly what we're interested in. And pretty much everybody in the audience uh, knows already a key piece of this puzzle, because anyone who has a garden will know that if I come with my secateurs and chop the top of this plant, then these axillary buds will activate and grow out. Because that's why pruning works. That's why, why if you want your roses to get bushy, you, you, you rather counterintuitively chop the top off them. <coughs> and uh, this is a phenomenon that's called apical dominance, uh, because the main growing apex, the leading shoot, can inhibit the activity of the buds in the, uh, at the base of the leaves below. So as I say, this is exactly why um, uh, <coughs> pruning your roses makes them bushy. So how is it then that these buds know that there is a big, happy, healthy shoot apex um, above? And the reason they know that, uh, one of the main reasons that they know that at least, is because this big, happy shoot apical meristem, or, or at least the young expanding leaves that are being produced by that meristem, are producing and exporting a small molecule that's called auxin. It looks like this, which is a bit like an amino acid. Again, many of you um, gardeners will know about auxin because it's actually the active ingredient in rooting powder. And auxin is a, a central signaling molecule in plants that allows this uh, long-range communication right down from the shoot to the root and also across the shoot system to allow the different parts of the plant to know what each other are doing and to respond accordingly. So um, the reason that it's a good, uh, that it's active you know, you can think about it from that point of view at any rate. The reason why uh, auxin promotes root growth and is a good ingredient in rooting powder is that if you're, if you're a, a root and there's an awful lot of auxin coming down to you from the shoot, that means we've got lots of happy growing shoot apices that are making and exporting this auxin. And so it would be a good idea to balance growth in the root, expand your root system to feed all these many happy shoot apical meristems. So it's a key element in achieving balance between the root system and the shoot system. And we can exploit that by, um, in root, rooting powder to try to induce rooting in, in cuttings. Okay. So <coughs> auxin is then the central signaler, signal that is moving uh, uh, information around the plant. And it's moving it 
in an incredibly elegant transport system. And it's really the properties of this transport system that provide a lot of the information about what's going on in a rather interesting and indirect way, which I will try to uh, uh, talk about over the next five minutes. So the elegant transport system you can see these days um, <coughs> with the tools we have available to us. So we know that the auxin is transported straight down the plant. And we know it's transported down the plant because if you add radio-labeled auxin to the top of the plant, the radio-label will arrive at the bottom of the plant. But if you add la labeled auxin at the bottom of the plant, it won't go up. It goes down. It doesn't go up. So that's one thing we, we know just from that, that, those kinds of basic physiology experiments. And this unidirectional movement turns out to be driven by specialized transport proteins that are present in files of cells in the stem. And you can see those transport proteins by fusing the, them to the um, green fluorescent protein from jellyfish, which we use a huge amount in modern biology to mark proteins so that we know where they are. So um, that's what we've done in, in um, this plant here. And you can see these little tiny um, strips of this green fluorescent protein marking this auxin exporter protein that's called PIN1. And it's present in these files of cells in the stem. And it's that protein that drives the auxin specifically down the plant, and it's the behavior of that protein that really allows this integration of information to occur across the shoot system, depending on how many shoots are active. So um, uh, we know that auxin is, is, is crucial for allowing these um, different meristems to talk to one another, because if you chop the top off the plant in the same way that I described before, and you apply auxin apically, then these buds don't grow out. And uh, we know that that auxin is transported down the plant because when you add radio-labeled auxin, that's what happens. And we know that somehow or other, these buds are being inhibited by the auxin moving down the main stem, despite the fact that the auxin is not going up into the buds because we know that the auxin doesn't go up. And we also know that if you use radio-labeled auxin, these buds are inhibited despite the fact that they don't accumulate any of that radio-label. So somehow or other, um, the, the buds are able to, to, they know, if you want to put it that way, that there's auxin moving in this stem indirectly, and that stops them from activating. And the key behind that, the answer to, to how they know indirectly, comes at least partly from the fact that each one of these buds, in order to be an active, happy meristem, has to be able to get its own auxin export established out and down into the main stem. And that process requires a reasonable trickle of auxin, a decent amount of auxin to be exported um, from these buds in the first place. So um, we know that in order to get an auxin transport flow like this one going, you need to have an early trickle of auxin um, through the work of a really um, uh, inspired physiologist in Israel in the... 60s, 70s, 80s, who was called Svi Sachs. He's, um, he's a really impressive guy. He's still working today, doing beautiful work. And um, he uh, uh, proposed the, um, these extraordinary self-organizing properties in the auxin transport system that have since been um, confirmed quite impressively um, through our modern, more modern molecular techniques. Although I must say, and I put my hand up. We don't know everything about this system. There is right at the heart of this a, a missing piece of information that we don't have, which we're all desperately going after. And I'll mention that when we come to it. So the kinds of experiments that Svi Saxida illustrated on this slide, this is a little bit of pea stem. Here's the existing vascular strands. And associated with those vascular strands are those files of cells with the polar auxin exporters. And um, if you wound this pea stem, you stick a razor blade into it like this and interrupt the, that movement of auxin down the plant, then something very, very interesting happens. So here's some pictures of some actual pea stems. And here is the, <coughs> the place where the incision was made. And here is a close-up of what's going on in this box. And what you can see here marked in red rather than in green before using a slightly different approach, you can see these pin proteins in the files of cells at the bottom of the plants moving auxin down the plant. So you stick this uh, razor blade in and two things happen. One is that auxin on this side of the razor blade is carried away down to the root. So there's low auxin now here. 
but auxin on this side of the razor blade builds up because there's an interruption to the auxin flow. So you now have high auxin here and low auxin here. And so there is now a trickle of auxin, a passive trickle of auxin that finds its way round the razor blade down to this existing um, auxin transport path. And that trickle both polarizes and upregulates pin auxin transporters. So what auxin is doing is both upregulating and polarizing its own transport in the direction of an existing transport path. And so you can see that when you look a few days later above the cut, these pin proteins are no longer polarized downwards. They're now polarized sideways. They're moving the auxin round the cut because the initial movement of auxin in that sideways direction has upregulated and polarized pin proteins in that direction. And after a few days, you come back and you see entire files of cells that go all the way around that cut and reconnect with the existing vascular system, and you've healed the, the breach. This is, uh, in many ways, a, a, a healing property that plants have that allows them to sustain really quite severe injuries and mend and also allows you to graft two different plants together. I know if you're a gardener, you know this, you can completely cut them in half, stick them back together again, and they will re-establish these quite um, complex vascular connections from the shoot to the root and the root to the shoot through this auxin transport um, uh, uh, self-regulating system that's been known as auxin transport canalization because it focuses auxin transport into a small number of files of cells that have this highly polar, high capacity for auxin movement. So it's this system that we think, this feedback between auxin movement and auxin transport that allows the plant to do this fancy communication. And so I just use a quick analogy to kind of re-emphasize what's going on here because it's so important to the overall message, I think, of, of how plants decide what to do. So here's a lawn. I work at the University of Cambridge. We have many lovely lawns, many of which have do not walk on the lawn notices. Now, we're British, so we mostly respect them. But nonetheless, it's very difficult because supposing there's a lecture over here and there are loads of thirsty students coming out of the lecture and supposing there is a pub over here you will find that some people will just walk past the do not walk on the lawn notice. And if there is this faint path on the lawn, more people will walk on the do not walk on the lawn notice, and eventually you'll just have to give up and make a path. So <clears throat> a high concentration of students and a sink for students in a pub would be enough to establish by positive feedback a strong path carrying um, students or auxin, from the, from the lecture theatre to the pub. And so that's what we think is going on in, uh, in plant shoots. And the experiment that Sachs did that really inspired us to think about this in the context of shoot branching control is um, this one, where you've um, same kind of experiment, bit of pea stem, existing vascular strand, uh, and then um, here what he did was make a little notch in it and put a, a dollop of auxin on the edge. So now you've got an awful lot of auxin here, and you've got a great sink for auxin in this existing uh, set of vascular tissues where there are those files of cells with the highly polar pin. And an initial flux of auxin between the source and the sink is going to be polarized and upregulated and carry auxin in these high um, flux cell files from the source to the sink. And some of those will redifferentiate as vasculature. It's the same kind of healing mechanism that I described before. And um, so the Sachs experiment was to put this blob of auxin on the side, come back a few days later, and see these vascular strands. And he actually made all these predictions about what the auxin transporters would be doing that have later been validated with molecular biology. But this experiment here was really interesting to us because what he found was if you simultaneously put a lot of auxin on the existing vascular strand so that now there's lots of auxin here already, this is a much less good sink for auxin. And even if you put a lot of auxin on the side, um, the initial flux of auxin from this source to this sink is not very strong. And so either absolutely nothing happens at all, or occasionally you'll get some vascular differentiation that just kind of wanders around a bit below this auxin sink. Um, <clears throat> and this, to us, looked remarkably like what's going on in a shoot system. Because in the shoot system, here's a little bud, which is potentially a great lateral source for auxin, like that blob that Sax added on the side of his stems. Um, and there, but there's lots of auxin from an existing happy apex further up the plant and that is being transported down the stem in these files of cells with the polar auxin transporters. 
And um, so uh, under this circumstance, this little bud is unable to get a decent auxin flow out into the stem because the stem's such a poor sink for auxin. If you chop the top of the plant, then all this lovely auxin coming from the apex will drain away because it will be transported down to the root. And this will now leave you with a fantastic sink for auxin in the stem. And this initial trickle can be upregulated and establish polar auxin transport from the bud into the stem. And, and we have quite a lot of evidence to support this idea that essentially what's going on is that all the little meristems on, in a shoot are competing with one another for access to this common auxin path, transport pathway down to the root in the main stem. And usually the primary shoot wins just because it got there first. So it's like you know, cars on the motorway driving down the plant. If you're, if you're in, a, in a side road, uh, road, you're going to find it quite difficult to get onto that motorway unless there are really good slip roads, which is why they put really good slip roads on motorways, because it's very difficult to get them. <laughs> so uh, it's this competition between buds that is really at the key uh, as to how these different shoot apices are communicating with one another. And Apex knows that there's lots of other happy, active apices if there's an awful lot of auxin in the stem, because that auxin has been exported by those active apices, and that makes it more difficult for that little bud to get going. So it's hard to activate if there are already a lot of active apices. And you can set up this competition artificially in the lab by just taking two nodes with two leaves and two ones of those meristems and, and a, in a kind of ready, steady, go experiment and ask those two little buds to compete with one another. And what happens is either if they both get going reasonably quickly, um, they will both activate. There's, it's perfectly easy for this, the nutrients we supply to support the growth of these two buds. But if one of them manages to get going faster than the other one, it will get its auxin export going and then inhibit the other one quite um, effectively. And, and these two buds are very close to one another on the stem. So in fact, either the apical bud can inhibit the basal bud or um, the basal bud, if that one gets going really quickly, can manage to inhibit the apical bud because it's filling up the stem with auxin. So effectively then, even if you think about a whole tree, all these apices are communicating with one another through this autoregulatory auxin transport network, where competition between buds is reinforced by that positive feedback in the system to allow winners to take it all, or at least as much of it as they possibly can. And that competition with reinforcement is, is a kind of key self-organizing uh, logic that I will get back to um, in a few minutes. So one of the reasons we, we are um, so powerfully convinced by this model is because since uh, proposing this model, uh, it's become clear that quite a lot of the other things that affect shoot branching affect it by tuning this auxin transport system. And I just want to mention quite briefly one of them. So one of them is uh, another hormone, and this is a hormone called strigalactone that we contributed to discovering through um, working again in this little mutant, this little plant that we work on a lot. And we work on it because it's really easy to make mutants. And mutants are one of the most powerful tools in, in, in biology because they allow you, just as Mendel did, to work with plants that are basically identical to one another except for the functioning or lack of functioning of a single gene. Um, so you make them just at random, but this, this plant here and this plant here differ, we happen to know, because we've looked very hard, by one nucleotide difference in their entire genome. And that nucleotide affects a particular gene, and that particular gene is involved in making this hormone called strigalactone. We call these mutants more um, axillary branching mutants, and so they're called MAX for short. And uh, uh, if you, if you, because when you mutate them, you get this, this very bushy, more branching <coughs> phenotype. This actually creates a kind of problem when you're teaching genetics uh, <coughs> it, to students. The logic by genetics in genetics is backwards because most genes were named after what happens if you don't have them anymore. And, and this is very confusing. So at the, the normal function of this gene is to make a plant look like this. And when you take it away, it looks like this, but we call it more branching. I just mentioned that because it can be confusing, but hopefully not too confusing. So here are these max genes, and they're all needed to make this compound called strigalactone, another one of these little hormones that's mobile over long distances in the plant, primarily moving from the root to the shoot. And the amount of strigalactone that moves from the root to the shoot depends on how many nutrients the plant is sensing in the soil. So it's kind of a nutrient signal. 
and it comes up the plant and it tells the rest of the plant there's lots of nitrate, there's not very much nitrate, or there's lots of phosphate or not very much phosphate. And the way it works, the way that modulates branching in the shoot is by tuning pin auxin transporters. So we know that because what we see is if you have a normal plant, it's got a certain amount of these basal pin proteins here, green again. And if you can't make strigalactone, this is one of these max mutants, it overaccumulates these proteins. Um, or this is another, a very interesting mutant that um, is unable to see strigalactone. So it's defective in the, in the proteins that the plant needs to allow it to tell whether or not it's made any strigalactone. So it overaccumulates those pin proteins too. And when you add a synthetic Strigalactone, the, what, one of the earliest things that happens is these pin proteins on the membrane are taken off, so you now have less pin proteins. And here's um, MAX1, this mutant that can't make strigalactone, it responds normally, whereas this mutant that can't see strigalactone obviously can't see it. So the way that this plant, uh, why, why this plant is, oops, why this plant is bushy is because it, it uh, doesn't make any strigalactone, and so it overaccumulates these pin proteins. And so what that means is that um, in, a, in a max mutant, you can think about buds as being almost on a hair trigger. So I told you there's this positive feedback between a, a trickle of auxin and the, the upregulation and accumulation of these pin proteins. So if you're a max mutant, you've got a very minor trickle of auxin, and so you put a little bit of pin protein into your membrane, but the pin protein doesn't come out again because you have no strigalactone. And that means there's a little bit more of a trickle, so you put more pin protein in your membrane, and so on and so forth. And that means that you need the merest whisper of an initial trickle of auxin from the bud into the main stem to establish auxin transport from the bud into the main stem and for the bud to grow out very quickly. And that is in contrast to a situation where there is strigalactone, because every pin protein you put in, some proportion of that's taken out because of the strigalactone. And how much is taken out depends on how much strigalactone that is, there is. And that, of course, depends on how many nutrients you have available to you. So if you go back to this buds competing with one another scenario, here's equal growth, here's... Uh, 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 one bud grows and the other bud doesn't, and here's the other way around. If you add more and more strigalactone, or if you take away more and more nutrient, then you shift to this situation where only one bud grows, and if you um, <coughs> take away strigalactone, you shift to this situation where both the buds grow. And a really important issue around this experiment is well, people tend to think of strigalactone as something that inhibits bud growth. And it's not really true. It doesn't inhibit bud growth. It increases the level of competition between buds. So you can feed one of these um, little two-node two explants lots of strigalactone. You will never get a situation where both buds don't grow, at least not in our system. One bud will always grow, and the other bud's inhibited. If you take away the strigalactone, both the buds will grow, because it, it's the competition between them that is finally uh, most uh, substantially being tuned by the strigalactone because it's the ease with which they can establish their own auxin export. So if we go back to this big tree, <coughs> there's this communication system between all the apices that are to do with a la um, a, um, competition for access to this common auxin transport path in the root, and strigalactone works by tuning the competition. I like to think of it like some kind of giant game of musical chairs where um, trigalactone is in charge of how many chairs there are. So, you know, there's a certain number of people. The music is turned off. Everybody tries to sit down. <clears throat> if there's no strigalactone, there are far more chairs than there are people. Everybody can sit down. If there's lots of strigalactone, there's only one chair. Only one person gets to sit down. Everybody else is out. That's kind of how it works. And it's that relativity that's important. You're never going to have a situation where no shoots are growing. That would be very bad for the plant. But it's great if you can tune how many shoots are growing, depending on the environment in which you're growing. So this is exactly the kind of thing that is going to allow a plant to think without a central processing unit. Instead of having a brain, you've got this long-range movement of small molecules that are interacting with um, or allowing long-range interaction through competition and reinforcement in the auxin transport network, which as a self-organizing principle is exactly the same thing that is rewiring your brain, as I am speaking to you, um, <clears throat> in response to environmental inputs. So it's competition and reinforcement in uh, electrical flows in across 
synapses in your brain that allows you to remember and learn. And it is competition and reinforcement across auxin flows between tissues in the plant that is allowing them to make decisions about whether to grow or not to grow. And these decisions are important. And the last five minutes, I just want to say something about why it's important from the plant's point of view and why it's then important from our point of view. So <laughs> let's go back to these uh, max mutants that are very bushy. Here they are again. Um, and already, you think to yourself, hang on a minute, this is a, this is a plant I've shown you. It's actually growing in very well-fertilized conditions. If I take away this hormone, it gets even bushier. And it actually makes more seed. If I put the um, wild-type plant on low nitrogen, it completely suppresses its shoot branching, hardly any branching left, because it's focusing its resources into the root. And it's trying very hard um, to look for more nutrients, essentially. So if, if, you, if you haven't got nitrogen, a much more sensible place to put the resource that you do have is into your root, because that's why you'll get more nitrogen. And the max mutants are pretty rubbish at doing that. They do it a bit, but they're not very good at it. They can't suppress their branching on low nitrogen and um, manage to make quite a lot of branches despite having very um, uh, limited fertilizer availability. Now, in, in, a, in the real world, this tells you two things. Firstly, it tells you that plants are pretty damn pessimistic about the future, because even when they're fully fertilized, they're not making as many branches and the seeds as they possibly can. And, and in the real world, that's probably sensible, because mostly plants are limited by either nitrate or phosphate, and mostly they can't rely on the, their supply. It's a very ephemeral supply. Things are being washed through the soil all the time. And if you're making a branch, you are committing quite a lot of resource to making branch and leaf and flower. And if you don't have the nitrogen to those seeds sensibly, that's a waste of resource. So they're a little bit pessimistic. And from our point of view, from an agricultural point of view, that's not very sensible because we are in charge of the fertilizer. We know how much there's going to be and when we're going to put it. And um, so this pessimism is not good from an agricultural point of view. And you can see how far you can kind of push it by essentially persuading a plant to make quite a lot of branches, even if there isn't very much nitrogen, which, again, if you're in the real world, that makes a lot of sense. That's a waste of resource. But if you're in a field, you could give very little nitrogen for a very long time, pulse it in at the last minute at the end, and still get all those seed filled, with, potentially. So this kind of information can inform agriculture, both from a breeding point of view, but also from an agronomy point of view, when and how to fertilize. And mapping this out more generally, um, you have to think about the fact that these decision-making systems in plants were built in by natural selection. Natural selection is all about how many grandchildren you have, and how many grandchildren you have um, is all about how successful you are at making healthy, happy seedlings. And the best way to do that is this very flexible growth habit I've talked about, and then to defend yourself like hell. So indigestible poisonous seeds that are preferably flung a long way away from the plant so that you're not competing with your, your siblings and your parent, and every seed minimally resourced so that you've got the maximum chance of many children surviving. A, a small number of very well-resourced seeds can work for some plant species, but on the whole, they go for this large number of minimally resourced seed. This is rubbish for agriculture. So from an agricultural point of view, you'd really like all your plants to behave well and not compete with one another and, and have this less, less flexible, um, reproducible growth habit in the field so they're all ready to harvest at the same time. You'd like them to stick a huge amount of very nutritious deliciousness into the seed, which is the part we mostly eat. We certainly would not like the seed to be flung off the plant. That would be a disaster. And um, as I say, we want the, the seed to be maximally resourced and minimally defended. Um, some of the most toxic compounds are, are found in seeds because they're not something that a plant wants you to eat. So natural plants are rubbish crops. <laughs> they have all kinds of very annoying characteristics that allow them to compete in the wild, like these beautiful seed dispersal systems that you are aware of in your lawns. Um, <laughs> and they are poisonous and spiny and tough and all the rest of it. And, you know, my, so, OK, my laboratory is called the Sainsbury Laboratory. It is funded by very generous uh, funding from the, uh, the Gatsby Charitable Foundation, which is the, the charity of, of um, Lord Sainsbury. The money comes rather indirectly from Sainsbury supermarkets. So you can see I'm not biased, because here is one of my least favorite products. <laughs> it's, called, it's from Sainsbury's. It's called Naturally Sweet Sweet Corn. 
To me, as a plant biologist, this is utter nonsense. This is a can full of plant babies. <laughs> Plants don't want you to eat their babies. This is seriously, unnaturally sweet sweet corn. This is what natural sweet corn looks like. It is uh, not sweet. <laughs> it's tough, it's indigestible, there's not very much of it. This, that we think of as sweet corn, is the product of 8,000 years of human intervention in the form of incredibly ingenious Mexican farmers, very astonishing levels of, of, of careful, selective breeding and, and over years. This is the closest wild relative that's called Tiacinti. These are actually cross-fertile, and so we've worked out, not me personally, but the, the community's worked out um, quite a lot of the genetic differences between these two things, and it's really interesting stuff. And it's all about refocusing resources into this small number of juicy, delicious seeds. It has nothing to do with natural, I can assure you. So... <laughs> so <clears throat> If you think about it, what nature has generously provided for us is this astonishing thing that plants do, which is create complex carbohydrates out of um, carbon dioxide and water, um, uh, and it, which is, you can think of as a kind of dishing, uh, as a kind of washing machine. It's a big white box that squirts water and detergent. But what we actually want to do is wash dishes. And um, washing dishes in a washing machine, I, I can assure you, is not a good idea. So what we'd like to do is to be able to work out which bits of the washing machine we want to keep, the squirty water detergent stuff, but get rid of the rotatey drum and replace it with a slidey drawer. That, that's, and essentially, that's a lot of what um, selective breeding's been about for a long time. Um, we're now facing all of these serious challenges, the so-called John Beddington perfect storm, where we have um, population growth, climate change, um, fuel and food and water uh, demands and insecurity. So we, we kind of need to up the game. We've got these very nice dishwashers, um, in some cases uh, actually not even quite decent dishwashers, but what we need now is super-efficient dishwashers that use less water and less detergent and heat the kitchen. And <laughs> we're only really going to be able to get those if we can understand better. I mean, 8,000 years of ingenious Mexican farmers have done a fantastic job just by um, kind of pragmatism, by picking the things that look nice. We can do that better um, if we really understand what they've picked um, and what they haven't picked, why they've picked it, what we need in, in these new times with a, a less stable environment, and how we might be able to get that. And so um, what my institute does, um, it's a very beautiful building in the Cambridge Botanic Garden. Do come and take a look if you're ever in Cambridge. Um, it, we're very focused on trying to understand those mechanisms, trying to understand in detail how they work. And I mentioned a long time ago the missing link in the story I've told you so far. And one of the main things that in my group we're trying to do at the moment is understand how it is that those auxin transporters are stuck into membranes in a way that relates to how much auxin there is flowing through those cells, and we simply don't know. And there are many questions like that, where if we had the answers, then we would be much better able to understand how plants are making their decisions and how we can convince them to be a little bit less pessimistic and to continue to provide us with the food that we need in a way that uses less water and less fertilizer and potentially some leftover stuff to put into a digester to fuel um, the kitchen. So um, that is how you think like a vegetable or think with no brain. <coughs> and why I think it's really important that we try to do that. It's really interesting and it's really useful. And thank you very much for listening. So it says here, I have six minutes and 47 seconds left for questions. So can I ask you a question? You mm. haven't talked about at all about how or if plants communicate. Mm -hmm. To what extent, under what circumstances, and to use your anthropomorphic language, do they talk? Absolutely. So um, that's a very good question, and they, they, um, they definitely communicate with one another in, the, in a variety of interesting ways. So, uh, um, 
some examples. Um, a plant is very aware of being shaded by another plant because that changes the, relative, the different... Photosynthesis uses only some wavelengths of light, so if you're under another plant, then you will be disproportionately um, lit by unuseful wavelengths of light because they'll have all been filtered out by the plant above you. Uh, and so there's a whole syndrome of things that plants do if they sense they're being shaded by another plant that's called the shade escape um, response. It's about getting out from under the shade of another plant. And it's distinct from what you do if you're just in the dark. Um, so, so that would be one thing whereby plants are, are communicating with one another in that sense. That's not what people normally mean. They normally mean, are you sending out some signal in a, in a kind of deliberate way? There's a, there's a lot of controversy about that in the context of um, defense signaling. So lots of plants make volatile chemicals when they're being attacked by insects that do things like attract the predators of the insect that's eating you. It's very cunning. <laughs> and um, if you send out those um, volatiles, then you're going to benefit, but actually the guy next door from you will also benefit. And part of the, um, the arsenal also involves volatile chemicals that warn the rest of you as a plant that there are those insects around, and, and that um, then uh, also increases your local defenses. And your neighbor can hear that and, and benefit it for, and up their defenses too. And you, know, you can argue about whether that's a sort of... A, a polite information that you give out to your neighbour that there are insects around and they should, you know, it's like neighbourhood watch or something. Um, but uh, probably that's kind of eavesdropping, actually, rather than direct communication. Um, there's also an awful lot of um, work now showing that... Uh, so lots of plants form... Um, uh, symbiotic relationships with fungi in the soil, and they really... Um, uh, um, connect quite deeply into the root system, and there is evidence that, that um, molecules from this plant are transferred to this plant via these fungi in the root systems, and there's some speculation about um, what the importance of that is. So there are lots of examples where plants know what their neighbouring plants are doing, whether it's really talking and listening or, or more eavesdropping is, is still kind of controversial. And there's one down here. Oh, and, uh, and one, so let's do that one and then that one. <laughs> Hello, thank you. Really fascinating. Uh, I had two questions. The first you've so well answered. The, the se my other question is, what happens to the auxin when it gets down into the base of the plant? And the, these, these messages which are now wasted, well, presumably not wasted, chemical engineer might say, the sink fills up, it's no longer a sink. <coughs> yes, so that's a, that is a super interesting question. And they're not wasted, partly because they're a crucial part of the shoot telling the root how much how much shoot there is, and what happens to them is they're transported right down to the base of the root, and then they go into this round and round loop, literally a round and round loop, also auxin transporters, and the amount of auxin in that loop regulates how fast the root is growing. So if, you're, um, if you've got lots of shoot and therefore lots of auxin in the root going with this round and round loop, then into which more auxin can feed so you don't take out the sink, then uh, you make a faster growing root and you also make more side roots. Um, and that round and round loop is also actually very important in, in, in steering root growth. So that, that's, the, that's the thing that's adjusted to allow roots to grow down in response to gravity. Um, so it, it's a continuous flow system um, that absolutely uh, um, makes the most use for the information it's got. Nothing wasted, I can assure you. Um, now, there was a gentleman here who nearly got to ask. Uh, but somebody... Okay, somebody over... I, I can't see who that is. I'm, I, it's quite difficult Do for me. plants have feelings? Oh, that's a very interesting question. That, uh, um, well, we could get... Are there any philosophers in the room? What's the definition of a feeling? <laughs> um, so it is undoubtedly the case that, you know, a plant can sense things, all kinds of things. I've talked about nutrient availability, light, those kinds of things. Um, do they abstract those in some way? Um, well, uh, we know they can remember, for example, whether they've been through the winter. Um, and there, are, there, are, they, there are changes in whether particular genes are off or on that happen during the winter that are then remembered even after the winter goes away. And so maybe that's a memory. Is that a feeling? Um, <laughs> and so they can do, I, I suppose the point is, they can do an awful lot of very sophisticated things. And when, whether you call that a feeling or indeed a decision, as I've talked about, or, a, um, or whether you think it's deliberate in some sense, I think depends quite a lot on your definition of those terms. Probably the level of abstraction that's possible if you have a brain 
is higher than the level of abstraction that's possible if you don't. So I would probably come down on the side of things like feelings, which are very abstract, not really happening in plants. But uh, on the other hand, it's a pretty gray definitional zone as to when it is that it's, it's an abstract thing and when it's uh, not. So I think I can take one more before someone's going to come and kick me off the stage, apparently. This gentleman um, who's been waiting for a long time. the plant leaf surface and its ability to absorb carbon dioxide, when we spray a plant in horticulture, how much are we interfering with the natural process of the plant really looking after itself through its ability to feed itself? Uh, so it depends a bit what you're, with what you're spraying it. So obviously plants don't really mind being drenched in things because they, as we can hear, <laughs> are perfectly able to cope with water. Um, and most of the carbon dioxide is absorbed through these little pores on the undersurface of the leaf. Um, called stomata, and uh, there's actually this kind of tension between op being, having open stomata that lets the carbon dioxide in, but it also is the thing that lets the water out. So the, the, the plant is always trying to balance how much water to lose versus how much carbon dioxide it wants. So um, where um, things like uh, the way you treat plants in horticulture comes in, I would say, is more in affecting that balance. If you're watering them properly, you're helping them get carbon dioxide. If you're not, then, then you're um, compromising their ability to do that because they tend to shut these little pores to keep, to conserve water. Naught, exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much.